Amen. You guys ever feel like you don't know what to say when you kind of get into a spiritual discussion with somebody? You know, you know what's going there. They might ask a question. Your heart starts beating faster. Your palms start to sweat a little bit. You're just like, ah, what am I going to say? You're trying to remember all those things you saw on a YouTube video once or something Pastor Mike said or something. What do I do? Maybe you even have that, that, that person, that friend, that family member that loves to come at you for what you believe and, 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 and make fun maybe even of the claims of the Bible. What do, what do we say when, when the topic drifts into spiritual things? And so something a little different these next three weeks, we're going to take a little break in Matthew and we are gonna, we're going to look at a, a three-week series of how to defend the faith. And full disclosure, okay, a couple things, family chat, a couple things up front. First of all, you are all pawns in my doctoral studies. So thank you for being willing to do that. This is part of my doctoral studies, as is uh, the midweek uh, session, which is coming. I know, shocking, right? The midweek session, which is coming up about uh, problems with Christianity. So this is not necessarily a how-to. That's what problems in Christianity is. That's the how-to. This is a Sunday morning service, so we, we preach God's Word here. So we are going to do an, an exegetical, expositional look at how three figures in the Bible, Jesus, Paul, and Peter, defended the faith, right? That leads me to the second thing. There are some of you here who are very nervous that we will never get out of Matthew. <laughs> I was approached by someone this morning, or several people this morning, going, why are we going backwards? What are you doing? Is this right? Yes, it is right. In hindsight, my dissertation, maybe I should have picked a different passage, but I didn't. And when I realized that we have to go backwards, we have to go, but we're not going to talk about it in the same way. Don't panic. Don't let your hearts be troubled. We will get through Matthew, I promise, sometime in 2025 or something like that. No, my plan is to finish it, just so you guys know, long-term planning, right? Three-week series on this. We're going to spend July and August in Psalms, and then it is hammer down from September to Advent, okay? I know with sun shining and it's summer, we don't want to think about Christmas, but it's coming, right? But we're going to finish Matthew next year, Lord willing. So, so pray for us. So getting back to what we're doing here, defending the faith, a lot of this has to do with the word apologetics. And when somebody says the word apologetics, it doesn't mean you're apologizing. It's Greek. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to defend, to make a defense. And so when someone says, hey, why do you believe what you do? That's stupid. You're able to then give a defense for what you believe. In our case, it's a defense of the legitimacy of the faith and church. Now more than ever, we need to know why we believe what we believe. Have to. And I hope it's plain to you as, as Christians what we believe, the gospel message as recorded in the Bible. I hope you can take courage and confidence that it makes sense. It, it is intellectually viable. Atheists, of course, would vehemently disagree with us uh, in, in that. But we need to be equipped in how to respond. The Bible itself is a study in how to defend the faith and hopes and the hope that we have, the gospel as legitimate. Let's be clear, though. The goal of defending the faith is not to win an argument. It's not to best somebody in the comment section of Facebook, right? It's not to shoot somebody down when you get in an interaction with somebody. The goal of defending the faith is evangelism. The goal of defending the faith is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. 
We don't want to be bullies. A lot of people sometimes have the reaction to uh, apologetics like, oh, that just means you get to be a jerk. It's like, no, you don't get to be a jerk. It doesn't, you can't do that. That's not what we're talking about. The passage that we will look to um, in 1 Peter is going to tell us we're supposed to do that with gentleness and respect. But I want to take us through a brief intro section uh, today from Matthew 19. As we look again at this, uh, this encounter with Jesus and a, the, the rich young ruler, which Bob read for us, we're, we're jumping back to zoom in on this particular passage of Matthew. We've already preached through it. We've already studied it. But I want to look at it in a different way. And Jesus is approached by a young man. We know from the passage that the man is rich. And he comes to Jesus and he asks, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which essentially is saying, Hey, what do I, how good do I have to be to get into heaven? If there's ever a question that a lot of people might consider, is it not that? If they believe in heaven, how good enough do I have to be in order to get into heaven? Jesus explains to him, you know the deal, keep the commandments. To which the man responds, cool, I'm nailing all the commandments. I'm crushing them. But I still feel like there's something that I'm missing. There's something that I lack, he says. Is there, I feel like there's something else. What else do I need to do? Jesus tells him the news that he definitely doesn't want to hear. He says, turn around, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, so that your treasure will then be relocated to heaven, and then come and follow me. He does not want to hear that. He turns away from Jesus and walks away sorrowful because he had a great many possessions. Could you imagine that? You turn around and you walk away from Jesus himself because you want to hold on to your stuff. Pretty strange encounter. I want us to look at a different aspect of this passage than we did last time, and I want us to look at how Jesus does this, how Jesus defends the faith or talks about the faith, and when it comes to apologetics and defending the faith, there's no one better than Jesus himself. And so if you allow me a brief intro section, another thing we have to be clear of, not just what we believe and why, but we have to be super clear on who Jesus is. One author writes that Jesus is one of the greatest teachers who ever lived, is not in dispute even by most non-Christians who are aware of his teachings. Certainly, he is the ultimate model for Christian teaching. Given this fact, we can only conclude that Jesus was also the greatest apologist for Christianity who ever lived. How is Jesus the greatest apologist? Well, that really has to do with who Jesus is, of course. I want us to dwell on who Jesus is just briefly because we must know that as a church. Jesus directly claimed to be the Messiah, God in the flesh. And before we get any further, let's get that solidified in our minds. And how do we know that? First, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. If we jump over to Luke really quickly, we see a crazy scene in Luke where Jesus enters the synagogue and starting in verse 17, he says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and everybody's looking at him. All the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop moment. 
He says, Isaiah was talking about me. I fulfill. I'm fulfilling Isaiah. And of course, they were, they were indignant. They were furious at him. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophets. But second, Jesus also fulfills God's law. We've seen this already in Matthew in 5.17 in the Beatitudes. Jesus himself says in verse uh, 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Romans 10.4 says, Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It doesn't mean the law goes away in a sense. We disregard it. It means that Jesus gave it its fullest meaning. We saw that in Matthew 5 when he talks about the Ten Commandments in light of him. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. He's the fulfillment of God's law. And third, and maybe most importantly, Jesus is God. He directly claims to be the Messiah, God in the flesh, on more than one occasion. This is the central distinguishing aspect of Christianity, a Savior who proclaimed to be God. I'll give you one or two scriptures here. And Jesus, when he met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, looking at verse 25, he says, the woman said to him, this is after their initial interaction, he says, uh, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. He says it plain, flat out, I am the Christ, I am the anointed one. In John 8, 58, he, he, he takes the holy name of, of Yahweh, he says, I am. Anytime Jesus says that, I am, it's a deity claim. One more in Mark chapter 14, shortly before his crucifixion, they were, they were questioning him. And he says this, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And he said to him, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus directly claimed to be God. Jesus fulfills the prophets, he fulfills the law, and he is God. And one author put it this way, apologetic methods should not be understood apart from the climactic events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. May we never lose sight of Jesus as we study apologetics. That's why I wanted to start with Jesus and anchor us again at who, who he is. Let's loop back down to this encounter with the, the rich young man, and I hope we can see that Jesus offers us an apologetic method that was contextualized, compassionate, and compelling. Our account here, again, familiar one, but Jesus uses a familiar engagement tactic. He's continually drawing people in, and he wants to know the context of their questions. This is the essence, again, of contextualization, right? We, we communicate an unchanging truth in the context of whatever the changing culture is. Sometimes people get nervous when we talk about contextualization. The thing to, thing to remember that we have to remember about contextualizing the gospel is we never, ever, ever change the message. We never change what the Bible says. We never change the truth. That's where the church is going off the rails right now because they say, let's change the truth to fit in with the culture. Wrong. You can't do that. The essence of contextualization is everywhere, though. We're sitting in a building. We're sitting in seats. 
Most of us are wearing pants or something, right? But it's all contextualization. We look like everybody else in America. We drive cars, we eat food, we do all the same things. But we never change the truth. We contextualize all the time. We don't talk to our toddlers the same way we talk to our bosses at work. Or at least I don't recommend that. When I, when I go to a Christian school or a Christian camp and I give a little 10-minute devotional talk, right? I talk to them. I talk to the kids. I don't talk for, you know, 40 minutes and talk about Greek and, you know, apologetics and stuff. They're going to be looking at me like, this guy's never coming back. (laughs) Jesus is the master at contextualization. And in this passage, we see how in a few ways. First, in verse 16, the young man approaches Jesus and asks him a very important question. And Jesus responds by asking him a question of his own. Look at again in our passage in verse uh, 16 of chapter 19. I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 19. Behold, a man comes up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he says to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one is good who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of the best apologetic lessons we can learn about defending the faith from Jesus Christ right off the bat is ask questions. Ask questions. That's what Jesus does right away. Jesus often uses the so-called Socratic method from the great philosopher Socrates. Socratic method, right? guess nobody saw that movie. Socratic method of asking questions to draw out the answer he desires from his opponents. He does so with the rich young man. Ask questions. The man is asking Jesus the universal question of what do I have to do to get into heaven? And Jesus says, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Why are you talking about me? What is, what is good? Carson puts it this way. He wants to earn eternal life, but in the light of verse 20, he apparently thinks there are good things he can do beyond the commands of the law, which can assure his salvation. Jesus also seeks to gain more context by realizing that this man is spiritually discontent. He picks that up immediately from the context of the situation. He's not at peace. He has a spiritual tension in his soul that he's trying to resolve. And surely one of the most critical skills to be developed in any apologetic method is not only to know the surface context of the interaction, what are are they saying, but what, what other information is coming across? What is their emotional state? What are their words actually saying and pointing to? Well, what, what, what is their heart? Jesus is the master at this. And also, through the question, Jesus identifies the bullseye of this man's heart. The hope of salvation is his wealth and his works. The way Jesus responds to the man clearly indicates he has hit the bullseye. And we see that because the man walks away. And no one should have their hope in their wealth and in their works. The Bible is so clear because no one is good. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's so much in that question. It's all loaded with context finding. And he asked one question. And so in an attempt to organize this, let me put it this way. Defending the faith involves asking context questions. Defending the faith involves asking context questions. One of the best things we can do when we are, we are questioned or when we have an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation, ask questions. 
So many of us, maybe if you're a youth group kid like me and you're scarred and you're like, ah, witnessing, what do I do for spiritual laws? Ah, Romans Road, I don't know what to do. Think about asking questions. Just stop and ask questions. You have to get to know the context. You have to get to know the person. You have to get to know the heart behind the questions as much as you can. Ask questions and ask more questions. A statement is blunt, right? But a question pricks the heart. A question gets at the why. You're asking them to respond. You want more information. Always be asking questions. How did you come to believe that? Is a context question. What makes you think that way? Is a context question. Author Greg Kokel, in his noteworthy book called Tactics, he talks about what he calls the Columbo tactic for the old uh, uh, detective back in the day, right? The TV show. Asking questions, what did you mean by that? Define terms. Or how did you come to understand that? How did you come to that conclusion? These get at the heart. It's not just a statement back and forth. Like Jesus did, he asks one question, and it breaks wide open. Questions will gain you gospel context, and again, the goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to proclaim the gospel in hopes that the Holy Spirit will open eyes to the truth and the reality of sin. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's not only seeking context, but he also expresses compassion. In Matthew's account, we don't really see it so much, but in Mark's account of this interaction, he had something very, very critical. So we see how Jesus has compassion. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 17, he says this, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man came up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Watch this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. and You will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Did you catch that? Jesus looked at him and loved this man. We have to have compassion. Compassion must be the driving force behind any apologetic encounter. Oftentimes, Christians are accused of not having compassion. Oftentimes, Christians, we even see it in the abortion argument today, right? Sure, your Christians want to save the babies, but then what do you do after it? You foster them? You adopt them? You care about what happens to them? You just care about them in the womb, and that's it. That's not true, of course. We care about all of human life from the womb until someone would pass away because everybody's made in the image of God. But that is a very, very frequent argument you hear again today about Christianity. But we need to have compassion, church. As strong as Jesus is with his opponents, he certainly displays a compassionate spirit to those who are hurting. This isn't the only time, of course, that we see Jesus having compassion. In Mark chapter 9, or Matthew chapter 9, sorry, and I think I I messed it up in the bulletin as well, that reference. Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 and 38, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into. But that's the reason Jesus came, was compassion. 
He left the glories of heaven to come to earth to save a people that rejected him. There's no greater compassion that has ever been shown. Back in our main passage, Jesus doesn't blow this off. He doesn't blow this man off, rather. His intent is not to drive him away or to win an argument. Because back in, in Matthew 19, we see that he actually invites him. Look at verse 20 and 21. It says, the young man said to him, all these I've kept. Right? If you would be perfect, do this. Do what you, you, you sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And then he says, come and follow, come and follow me. He doesn't just want to get rid of him. He invites him to follow him. It's not just winning an argument. After Jesus tells him the real deal of how to enter the kingdom, he invites him to follow him. This is true compassion in action. Of course, Jesus knows this man will not follow him, but the invitation is still there. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the greatest defender of the faith who has ever lived, and no one had more compassion than Jesus. Here's the point. Defending the faith involves having compassion for the lost. Defending the faith involves having compassion for the lost. Mark is clear about this. Jesus loved this man. He was lost and maybe in all likelihood never came to the faith. He was spiritually dead. Church, do we love the people that we think in our hearts will never come to faith? Do we love the people that maybe attack us for our faith or belittle us for our faith? Do we love the people that are on the news vandalizing Christian pregnancy resource centers over abortion? Do we love those deceived by the LGBTQ agenda and shoving it down the throats of our kids in public school? Do we love them? 1 Corinthians is clear. Without love, we're a noisy gong and a clashing cymbal. The right response to seeing someone who is lost is what? Compassion. They're lost. They don't know any better. That's, that's the thing. You, 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 you see this resistance towards Christianity, but that's from a heart that is hardened to God and spiritually dead. They literally don't know any better. Defending the faith involves compassion for the lost. This past week at midweek, shameless plug, Wednesdays, 6.30, we looked at the life and theology of Jonathan Edwards, perhaps America's greatest theologians, and one of his best works was a title called Religious Affections. The idea that we shouldn't be ruled by our emotions, but that our emotions should be rooted in the truth of Scripture, and that should actually do something to our emotions. He said this, if the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. He, he, was, he was the great awakening, right? You had crazy things going on. You had people barking like dogs and running around and screaming and panting and crying and, you know, mass hysterics. And so he's reacting to that, saying it's not just all emotion. That's, that's, that's a groundless emotion. But it's not just all truth either. It's not just all that's it. It's just something we believe. The Bible says it, so it's just a, it's got to be both. And he says, if you rightly understand the truth, it will affect your emotions. It has to. We need to understand two fundamental things about those outside of Christ to have compassion on them. And first, they're headed to an eternal hell. The scripture is unfortunately very clear on this. When the Lord returns, his own compassion will no longer be available. 
Right now, his compassion and his grace and his forgiveness is available, but there will be a time when that will run out. That's the role of us, church. That's why we make and mature disciples and proclaim the gospel every chance we, had, we get. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, two of the scariest verses in the Bible, it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Scripture is clear. First thing when we talk about compassion for the lost, they're lost because they're headed to an eternal hell. Second, we must understand when we're talking about compassion for the lost, that without someone compassionately bringing the message of the gospel to them and without the Holy Spirit opening their eyes to its truth and being convicted of their sin and they receive it, they're spiritually blind and spiritually dead. If you see someone who is blind and walking down a path, walking off a cliff or wherever else, going into traffic, you really, you're not going to yell at them, what are you doing? You can go grab them because they can't see. It's the same way. Ephesians 4.18 tells us they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. When defending the faith, it's necessary to have compassion. And we have compassion on the lost because they're, they're going to hell. They're on the way to hell. And they're blind and they're spiritually dead. Jesus had compassion on the lost. He said they were like sheep without a shepherd and it broke his heart. And it should break our heart as well. All that should then compel us to make a robust and powerful defense of the faith. In the account of the rich young ruler, Jesus isn't messing around. Despite gaining context and expressing compassion, Jesus speaks the truth. He tells him, look, this is the way it is. First, after Jesus contextually identifies the source of the man's hope as obedience to the law and his identity and the wealth, he applies the heart of the law with devastating results to this man's life. Jesus powerfully points out that there can be no hope of eternal life with just empty rule following. The man knows this. He said he's obeyed all the commandments his whole life, but he knows it. Why? Because he says, I still lack something. Verse 21, back in our, our main passage. And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect or complete, go sell all that you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. One commentator writes, this young man wanted a teacher. He didn't want a Lord who demanded sacrifice. No wonder the man was grieved. Not only that, note once more that Jesus, after laying down the truth, he didn't just leave it there. He calls for a response. He invites this man to follow him. Jesus tells him to sell all he has and come and follow me. The man will never do that because he loves his stuff too much. And we see the response in verse 22 that he, of course, turned away sorrowful and grieving because he had a great number of possessions. But still, Jesus tells him the hard truth and then challenges him to respond. In other words, Jesus is not only contextualized and compassionate, he's also compelling. And our last point about defending the faith. Defending the faith involves speaking the truth and inviting to respond. 
Defending the faith involves speaking the truth and inviting to respond. Church, we have to be ready to stand on the truth of Scripture. Churches all over the place are changing Scripture to make it fit in with the culture. We cannot do that. We have to stand on the truth of Scripture, and we have to know what it says. And then we have to call for a response. Too many churches are caving into cultural pressure. Too many churches are changing the message of Scripture to make it more palatable, to make it more seeker-friendly. They're watering it down. We can't water it down. Not only that, we see in Jesus that Jesus never waters it down. And then he firmly puts it back on the rich young man. That's something to, that's why I started with Jesus because most of the time people will look to Jesus and say, okay, well, what did Jesus say? Because I like Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, I like Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, he's like, yeah, he's got the, the feather back hair and he's wearing, you know, he's always got a lamb on his shoulders or a kid and he's, you know, passing out candy and, you know, healing people. I like Jesus. I'm down with that. I want to be like that. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is scary. He's got an anger problem. He's like killing millions of people. I don't, I don't want that. I like Jesus. But do they actually know the Jesus of the Bible? Because if they did, they would see that Jesus never compromised on truth. Ever. This man came to Jesus and said, I want to essentially follow you, Jesus, and here's the way I want to do it. I want to follow you my way. This is, this is it. Tell me what I got to do. Tell me what boxes I got to check. I'm doing it. I am the master of following the law. I've been doing it since kingdom kids. I got it nailed. <laughs> and Jesus says it doesn't work like that. We don't come to Jesus with how we want to follow Jesus. We come to Jesus and Jesus tells us how to follow him. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow him. Jesus tells him, that's not going to work. You're wrong. If you want to follow me, here's how you follow me. I'm the one making the rules here. I'm the one holding the standard. Church, we're being pressured to change the rules. But we don't make the rules. We have a book. It's in here. These, this tells us what we need to know. These are the rules. We don't get to change them if culture changes. We have to stay faithful, defending the faith and speaking the truth and inviting people to respond. Some will and some sadly will not. What can we learn from Jesus and his model of defending the faith? First and foremost, church, remember who Jesus is. Remember who he said he is. He's the Messiah. He's God. He's also our model for how we defend the faith because nobody did it better than Jesus. Many times people, again, will try to appeal to Jesus and say, I like Jesus. There was one politician I saw on the news recently, uh, read an article where, where he stood up and said, I will now recite everything that Jesus said condemning homosexuality. And he sat there, silent, for a few moments. The point being was that he thought Jesus didn't say anything that condemns homosexuality. He must have missed Matthew 19, 4 through 5, because we talked about that a lot, where Jesus clearly condemns homosexuality. We've got to know who Jesus is, and we've got to know what he said. Because the world is out there, and they have a different understanding of who Jesus is. We've got to stand on the truth of who he is. Yes, the world is very confused about who Jesus was and what he said, but it's all written down for us here. 
The Lord and the Holy Spirit has preserved the word of God so that we see it and we walk in it. We have it as the church. Jesus, the master of defending the faith, and he did so by asking context questions, seeking to understand the position more. He defended the faith by having compassion on the lost. He defended the faith by speaking the truth and inviting people to respond. We would do well to be like Jesus in all regards, of course. But in this regard, and particularly our culture right now, we have to know how to defend the faith, and we have to know what Jesus said. We have to be ready to stand on it. Church, I quoted Mason a couple weeks ago. He says that the greatest barrier to people understanding the gospel is incorrect ideas. They don't even know what they're rejecting. They don't even understand it. They have such a twisted perspective of Scripture. We are the ones that need to bring the truth of Scripture. So we got to define terms. What are you talking about? Who's Jesus? There's a good one to ask. Who's Jesus? Take him to Scripture. See what Jesus said. He defended the faith by asking context questions, by having compassion for the lost and speaking the truth and inviting people to respond. Culture has, by and large, turned against Christianity. I hope I'm not informing anybody of that fact. We're no longer the cool kids. We might have been maybe for a little while there in the late 70s, early 80s. I don't know about that. But no, people do not like us. You meet other people at the bus stop with your kids or games or you know, people at work or something. They're just like, okay, Christian, crazy person. right? They're going to walk away from you. You're not going to get invited to the coolest parties and everything anymore. The culture has turned against Christianity. What certainly doesn't help and even gives our opponents ammunition is that so many so-called churches and pastors and Christians are so dead wrong about what the Bible says. That's what gives the world ammunition. And that's a really good bullet in their gun. I hate to say it. It really is. I've had more than one discussion where it's like, you want to talk about truth? You want to talk to me about truth? You guys don't even know what truth is. You guys can't even agree on what truth is. And they're right. Highlands has to be different. Highlands has to know the truth of God's word. Again, you almost, you almost feel sorry for an unbeliever looking in on the church. What do they believe? What, what is it? One church says one thing and the other thing says something different. But church, this is the truth. This is what we've been given. This is our tool, right? This is God's word. This is literally God's breath. And specific to our point today, of course, Jesus is that truth. We have got to stand firm on who Jesus is and the word of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit then defend the faith contextually, compassionately, and compellingly. Let's pray that we'll have opportunities to do that. Let's also pray that we will experience fruit. The Holy Spirit will give us fruit in those discussions. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. Lord, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the model of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to open our eyes. Uh, provide us these opportunities where we can defend the faith, where we can spread the truth, where we can do so with gentleness and respect, where we can talk about who you are, and where we can do so in hopes that you will open eyes and save souls. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.